Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. This is Starship Sova. Everybody, welcome, hello and welcome to show number 172. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Hello everyone, I hope everyone is fine. Just let you know, my internet's been down for two, two days. <laughs> That's just the worst thing. I've been like a fish out of water there with that. Oh, shocking. Let you know what's coming in today's show. We have our good friend, Fred Heimbaugh, with his graphic fan. Next up, we have Main Fiction, which is The Incredible Steam Man by Ron Goulart. Then we hit the Jack McDivitt Starship Sova Interrogations. This is the one where, you know, if I was any decent... Producer of audio, I should have had them two together with this story, but I didn't, so there. Anyway, we've got Interrogations, Jack McDivitt. Then we have part two of Kim Stanley Robinson's Escape from Kathmandu. A fine show. I do hope you agree. Just before we get into that, a little heads up. It is now time, or nomination times, I don't know if you know or not, but the Hugo's is out there. Again, the ballots are open for the nomination round. Wouldn't it be nice if we got on there? If you can make that possible, that would be fantastic. What I would like to do, obviously, you know, Starship's over for our best fanzine. I think I've mentioned that already as well. That would be just amazing. You know, people that's been and voted, you can still vote on the nomination round. And wouldn't it be nice if we could get the Jack Vance and Fred Paul one, the, the interview that I carried out with them for best related work, get nominated for that. And like I say, once you get nominated, then... The, you know, the, the kind of that's it. You can kind of relax, and it's in kind of lap of the science fiction gods there. To if you get if you get through to the kind of winning the thing, but just be nominated would be fantastic for something a different category. Do you know that would be amazing? So if you can do that, please, that would be very nice. Write it on your blogs, pass the word around. That would be fantastic. <laughs> So we're going to jump straight in with our good friend, Fred Heimbar. I hope he's had a fantastic festive season. Fred, I hope you have. And we're hitting off with Graphic Fan. Fred, sir. Hey, Sofa Beings. Fred Heimbaugh here, bringing New Year's greetings to you on behalf of all the peace-loving people of planet Earth. This episode of The Graphic Fan is called Astro, Astro, City, City. That first word of the title stands for Astro Boy, of course. You probably saw the 2009 movie version starring Nicolas Cage, and maybe you're aware of the 1980s Japanese anime TV series. I watched some of those episodes with my kids and liked most of them. Astro, or more properly, Adam, is the creation of manga god Osamu Tezuka. 
You may not be aware of that name, but in Japan, he's a legend. More than anyone else, Tezuka is to blame for all the big eyes that you see in anime. He has a love for big hair as well. Even his warrior characters have impossible gravity-defying hairdos. Tezuka definitely has weird tastes and helped define the modern Japanese popular aesthetic with all its weirdness and contradictions. If I were more of a Tezuka expert, I might feel compelled to spend a whole graphic fan episode introducing him to Starship Sofa listeners. As it is, I'm going to recommend to you a manga series not by Tezuka at all. It's called Pluto by Naoki Urasawa, and it's published in eight volumes, the last volume having appeared just a little over a year ago. And there's talk of a movie adaptation. Pluto is an updating of The Greatest Robot on Earth, an episode from Astro Boy. It does a great job exploring the central question of the Astro Boy series. When robots become plentiful and powerful, will they peacefully coexist with humans? Naturally, robots are a metaphor for the various groups which divide the human race. However, I happen to think the question is interesting when taken literally. In Pluto, the seven most advanced robots in the world are dying. Detective Gesicht is sent to catch their killer. Gesicht approaches the investigation with a sense of urgency, not to mention doom, since he is one of the seven. Pluto has so many interesting characters. There's North Number 2, the war-weary robot who seeks solace in playing a piano and suffers insults for it. There's Gesicht himself, who desperately wants to start a family with his robot wife. There's Braun1589, a manslayer, now an impotent pile of scrap who advises Gesicht and manipulates distant events in a manner reminiscent of Hannibal Lecter. And finally, there's Adam, the Astro Boy himself. I love the page in Volume 8 where Little Adam finally becomes exactly the rocket-powered dynamo his TV predecessor was. He blasts into the air, then flings himself down in a desperate attempt to pierce the crust of the earth. Your eye traces a parabolic curve right across the page as they follow the panels, mimicking the path of Adam in the sky. This is no accident, but a result of the deliberate arrangement of the panels on the page. This effect could not have been realized in any other medium. Comics theorist Scott McCloud, whom I mentioned in the first graphic fan episode, would be proud. Urasawa enjoys weaving together complex plot threads. There's also a menace that builds each time the murderer leaves his calling card, a set of horns stuck on the heads of the victims. The series is called Pluto. Read it. Now let's look at the middle words of my title. A series called Astro City by Kurt Busiak, Brent Anderson, and Alex Ross. There's a type of comics, godfathered by Alan Moore, which attempts to reinvent the superhero narratives by taking seriously the question of what would life really be like in a world with superheroes. Astro City is a fine example of the type. Think of it as a cheerier variant of Watchmen. I'm not going to dwell on Astro City. Its first volume came out about 15 years ago, and some of you no doubt read it a long time ago. But if you haven't, check it out. Check out Samaritan. His powers are so great, his only limitation is that he can only be in one place at a time. His powers are a terrible burden. 
For him to rest for a few moments must doom any number of people to certain death. Check out the bum who has an incredible stroke of luck when he catches a superhero in the act of removing his mask. This knowledge of the hero's secret identity gives him a sense of power. But can he figure out how to exploit this newly gained knowledge? Check out Shadow Hill, a suburb of Astro City ruled by medieval magic instead of modern pseudoscience. Are you any more or less dead if you are killed by Shadow Hill's monsters instead of Astro City's arch-villains? This book is an effortless read, and the artwork is beautiful. I've read the first volume, called Life in the Big City, but the series has continued to publish volumes sporadically all the way through 2010, with the last volume called Astro City, The Dark Age Book One, Brothers and Other Strangers. I have more of a mixed review for the final word of my title. City refers to the dystopian cult classic Mr. X, a graphic novel series by Dean Motter, based on a premise with a promise... It's about an architect who understands the effect the urban environment has upon its citizens' mental states, and thus psychotecture is born. But the architect's collaborators are incompetent and corrupt, and his ideas are imperfectly realized on a metastatic scale. The result is Radiant City, a population-driven mad. Mr. X, himself a reclusive, self-doping insomniac, must return from exile to save the city using a network of secret passageways which he designed into the city himself. Dean Motter's first attempt at the story in 1984, nice timing there, Mr. Motter, fell short. Its cover art achieved levels of stylishness unique to comics at the time, but the panel art was pedestrian and the storyline squandered its potential by revealing the enigmatic Mr. X way too early. More recently, Modder has returned to the story for a reboot that was more comprehensively consistent with the cover art. Mr. X is now retro-futuristic, noirish, expressionistic, modern, and maybe a mashup of other self-consciously newer-than-now stylistic flourishes. I really can't keep track of them all. If the transportation you've been wishing for all your life is a Studebaker that flies, these are the comics for you. I suggest you skip the original series completely and proceed directly to the various reboots, with their flashes of brilliance and their consistently tasty eye candy in the form of dizzying skyscrapers and chrome-plated tail fins. I must say the plots don't always cohere perfectly, and Motter's love of puns sometimes trumps his good taste. This is nowhere more true than in the spin-off Electropolis, which boasts a cigar-chomping robot detective as a protagonist, and in which Mr. X appears as a minor character. I still recommend it, and especially I recommend the titles Mr. X Condemned and Terminal City. That's it for this time. Enjoy your 2011, and don't let the homicidal robots and megalomaniacal architects get you. There you go.
go, Fred. Thank you so much. Learning all the time, sir, as I always say. Thank you, Squire. Next up is Main Fiction, and it's by Ron Goulart. Just give you a little heads up what Wikipedia say of Ron Goulart. I'll put a link onto this Wikipedia site because Ron, I can't find an actual website for Ron. But Ron Goulart, born in January 13th, 1933, is an American popular culture historian and mystery fantasy science fiction author. He's wrote many novelizations and other work under various pseudonyms. Kenneth Robeson, Chad Calhoun, R.T. Edwards, Ian and R. Jameson, loads of them. Goulart's first professional publication was in 1952, a reprint of the SF story Letters to the Editor in the magazine of fantasy and science fiction. This parody of the pulp magazine Letters column was originally published in the University of California, Berkeley's Pelican. Goulart's fiction is characterised by several themes, notably humour, technology gone wrong, heroes and with superhuman power. His humorous crime and science fiction includes tales about robots, historical Hollywood figures, such as Groucho Marx. In the 1970s, he wrote several Phantom novels featuring Lee Falk's The Phantom for Avon Books. And it is widely known, well actually it's why I didn't know this, it is widely known that Goulart ghost wrote the popular Tech War books credited to actor William Shatner. There's a thing, didn't know that. This story is narrated by... Paul W. Campbell. Paul runs the site Cosmas Infinities. If you haven't been over there, please pop over. You can find it at cosmas.co.uk. I'll put a link on the website. Paul set up his own fiction podcast website. And well, I think we've even had Matthew Sanborn Smith has appeared over there as well. So I'll put a link on to Cosmas. I'm sure Matthews was fluff and buttons on Teddy Bear range. If, that, if I'm looking at uh, Google here, I'm sure that's that's the one he had up there. So please pop over to Cosmas and a, a great site, well worth popping over there. So Starship Sofa is very proud to present. The Incredible Steam Man by Ron Goulart The pretty dark-haired young woman met Harry Challenge at Waterloo Station and didn't try to kill him until half an hour later. It was a chill, foggy afternoon in the early winter of 1899, and Harry had just arrived in London after clearing up a case involving a vampire cult that had been flourishing in a Somerset village. The young woman, wearing a chequered cloak over a long-skirted dark suit, and smiling thinly, was waiting on the platform as his train pulled in. He stepped from his compartment, carrying his single suitcase, and smoking one of the thin cigars he favoured. Harry was a clean-shaven man in his early thirties, lean and a shade above average height. Folded in the breast pocket of his dark business suit was the cablegram from New York that had brought him to London. It read, Dear son, quit resting on your laurels and your backside in the wilds of Merry England. Get yourself to London right away. A crackpot scientist named Hulbert Beresford wants us to find his runaway automaton. He's got lots of dough. Let him know when you'll arrive and the poor mutt will meet you. Your devoted father, the Challenge International Detective Agency. Harry had walked about ten yards along the misty platform when the young woman stepped into his path. You look about what I imagined Harry Challenge would look like. Are you he? She asked with a notable lack of enthusiasm. I am, yeah. Frankly, I think my father's making a terrible mistake hiring you. 
She told him, Scotland Yard is much better prepared to handle this sort of matter. But my dear father, being eccentric and a bit dotty, insists on throwing his money away on an overrated American inquiry agency. Harry exhaled smoke, grinned, tipped his bowler hat. This is the nicest welcome I've had many a month, he confided. Usually I'm met only by cute little blonde girls with baskets of flowers or a natally dressed mare with the key to the city. You're Beresford's daughter, huh? I'm Emily Beresford, she said. And you are extremely rude, Mr. Challenge. He nodded in agreement. Being insulted does tend to bring out the loud in me, Miss Beresford. Did you come to Waterloo Station simply to offer your critique, or are you planning to escort me to your dad? I have a hansom cab waiting outside. Turning, she started walking briskly along the platform, her cloak flapping. Harry followed. As the hansom cab rattled along through the foggy London streets, Harry asked, Thackeray? The inventor's daughter gave a faint sigh. <sighs> My father's favourite author, she explained. He met him once in his youth. Why one would name a steam-driven automaton after an overrated and outdated novelist is beyond me. Thackeray has a certain ring to it, and it's less controversial than naming him Oscar Wilde. You'd probably have christened him Fritz Katzenjammer. Well, that's catchy too. How did Thackeray come to run away? Some of the heavy fog seemed to be seeping into the cab. Emily tightened her cloak around her. The steam man didn't initially run away. Someone stole him. When was this? Nearly a month ago. How? Harry took a puff on his cheroot. My father's laboratory, which is attached to the rear of our house, was broken into and Thackeray carried off. Where were you and your father when that happened? Attending the opening of a show of paintings by... Jeremy Otterbridge, at the Gifford Gallery. Glancing out the window of the swaying cab, Harry spotted a large, bright new poster among those slapped on a siding. It announced in bold type that none other than the great Lorenzo and his internationally acclaimed astounding magical show was now playing at the Royal Serpentine Theatre. Well, my old friend Lorenzo is in town, he observed. I have to look him up, sir. Would this inane comment of yours have a blessed thing to do with my father's dilemma, Mr. Challenge? Uh, nothing at all, no. He admitted, exhaling cigar smoke. Now then, your father didn't call Scotland Yard? Emily said. He's very secretive about his work, and being a very stubborn man as well, he refused to consult the police or the Yard. He's been trying to find Thackeray on his own. But now he's hired us. Why? There's been a new development, she answered. That's why he decided he needed outside help. I only hope you're up to the task. Harry exhaled cigar smoke. What sort of new development? The cab swayed as it rounded a corner. My father will explain all to you, Mr. Challenge. Do you have any suspicions as to who might have swiped your automaton? I believe... It was foreign agents. From where? As you know, if you keep up with international news at all, there's a new war that's broken out between the two middle European countries of Outavia and Sintavania, the young woman said. Some weeks ago, a baron Sonifero, 
who is an Octavian diplomat stationed here in London, called upon my father. He'd somehow gotten wind of the steam man and queried my father as to whether automatons like Thackeray could be used on the battlefield. Father, disdaining any such martial use of his work, threw the Baron out. You think Sonifero came back and stole Thackeray? It's certainly a possibility, but you're the detective, Mister Challenge. It's up to you to determine the truth. A moment later, the cab pulled up at a narrow three-story brick house at the edge of the Bloomsbury district. Harry paid the driver, despite the protest of Emily, and they entered the chill, shadowy house. The father should be home shortly, the young woman said, taking off her cloak. You can wait in the parlor. It was in the parlor that she took two shots at him. A moment after Harry pushed through the beaded curtain and crossed the threshold of the cluttered parlor, the grandfather clock, standing crowded between the glass-fronted bookcases and a whatnot stand dominated by a collection of small japanned boxes, struck the hour of four. It bonged in a reverberating temple gong sort of way. Yes, of course," murmured Emily out in the hallway. Walking rather stiffly, she entered the shadowy parlor and, skirting a plump purple ottoman, slid open a drawer in a marble-topped, claw-footed table. "What time?" Harry started to inquire. "Do you expect your father to?" Whoop! The dark-haired young woman, who'd extracted a derringer from the drawer, had the compact weapon aimed directly at Harry. "You are an enemy of progress," she charged in a droning voice. "Thus, you must cease to be." She fired the gun. Harry had by that time dodged to his right, knocking over an oriental screen and causing it to topple a potted aspidistra off another claw-footed table. Emily's second shot also missed, putting a hole through the crown of his bowler hat, which had fallen off its place atop the tumbled table. Before she could fire again, Harry crouched low, dived toward Emily. He grabbed her gun hand, forcing her arm downward. With his free hand, he aimed and delivered an uppercut to her petite jaw. Eyes rolling suddenly upward, Emily sighed, swayed, fell over the ottoman, and sprawled out on a rather surly-looking tiger-skin rug. "See here, young man, that's hardly the way to treat my daughter," protested someone in the hallway. "Admittedly, the dear girl can be decidedly aggravating at times, yet you're Beresford." Picking up the unconscious young woman, Harry deposited her fairly gently on a mauve divan. "I am." The lanky, middle-aged man in the Norfolk suit stepped into the parlour. "And you, sir, Harry Challenge," he informed his client. "You hired our detective agency. Your daughter met my train, brought me here, and then tried to knock me off. That's decidedly odd," he said, crossing toward his daughter. "Emily is a very independent young woman, but like myself, is a dedicated pacifist. She has never before, to the best of my knowledge, shot a single soul." Could be, as in this case, she tried and missed. After stroking his impressive grey beard, Beresford bent to take hold of Emily's wrist. Pulse seems normal. He let go of the wrist and placed his palm against her forehead. I can't, old man, imagine what prompted her to try to shoot you. For that matter, challenge, I was unaware that she possessed a gun. Bending, Harry picked up the derringer and held it out. This isn't yours. The inventor didn't accept the proffered weapon. He took a backward step. Giving a negative shake of his head, it is not now. Emily moaned. Whatever, she murmured. Oh, whatever has taken place. 
She sat up, eyelids fluttering. What's that disagreeable odour? It smells as though someone has been celebrating Guy Foxty indoors. Uh, you apparently, my dear, explained her father quietly. Attempted to slay poor Mr. Challenge. I didn't know such thing, she frowned at Harry, indignant. How can you have formed such a ludicrous notion, Mr. Challenge? Mostly, Miss Beresford, it was your pointing this thing at me and pulling the trigger a few times. He held a derringer toward her. She flinched. Nonsense! I detest firearms! Dropping the gun on a marble tabletop, he scooped up his injured hat. Poking his forefinger in the hole, he said, This is a bullet hole. I... Dear me, I... I seem to have a vague recollection of using that gun, but... When the clock yonder struck four, you went into some sort of trance. Surely it isn't four o'clock yet? She consulted the watch pinned to her blouse. Why? It is. Beresford scowled. What the devil is going on here? Somebody apparently hypnotized your daughter, answered Harry, and instructed her to kill me. Beresford had changed into a smoking jacket of a decidedly oriental pattern and perched a somewhat floppy crimson fez atop his sparse grey hair. Harry was sitting forward on a plump Morris chair that matched his clients. They were both in the large drawing room. The fog outside the narrow windows had grown thicker and the fire crackling in the small stone fireplace did little to alleviate the chill. Before we go into my reasons for hiring your detective agency, said the bearded inventor, I would like very much to hear your advice as to how to counter what's been done to Emily. One can't, you know, have one's daughter going about taking potshots at people. Inconvenient, yeah. Harry lighted a fresh, thin cigar. Oh, while you were changing, I took the liberty of using your telephone to track down my friend, the great Lorenzo. There are some who argue that he isn't, as he claims the world's greatest magician, but Lorenzo is a crackerjack hypnotist. Can this Lorenzo chap reverse what's been done to my daughter? Harry answered. He assures me he can. I arranged to convey your daughter to consult with him this evening at seven, if that suits you and Miss Beresford. You want to be dragging her to some low music hall challenge? The great Lorenzo never plays in low music halls, the detective assured him. Besides, we'll be calling on him before he leaves for tonight's performance. At his hotel? Harry flicked ashes into the nearest potted palm pot. Actually, he's a house guest of Mrs. Dennis Edgware Ryder. Beresford sat up. The famed novelist and author of The Clue of the Red Rose? That Mrs. Dennis Edgware Ryder, yep. From the nearby music room, Emily began playing a mournful tune on the spinet. After a few seconds, she sang. They found Lord Dowlish cold and dead. He had put a pistol shot into his head. Raising his voice, Harry requested, Tell me about your missing automaton. Crouched on the slanting skylight of the inventor's workshop, was a plump calico cat. Paws folded under her chin, she gazed speculatively down as Harry and Beresford made their way into the room. There was a Bunsen burner flickering on the black workbench closest to the far wall. Hanging in the corner, suspended from a wrought iron hook, was a time-yellowed articulated skeleton, and on a camp stool near it sat the copper torso of an automaton. 
Wooden boxes jammed with tools rested atop the other two workbenches, along with heavy spools of thick wire, spills of glass tubing, three different sized kettles, an overcoat, a floppy felt hat, and a bunch of silk violets thrust into an empty ginger beer bottle. Looming large on one buff-coloured wall was an ornately framed oil painting of Buffalo Bill Cody, in a style somewhat like that of Whistler. "'Admirer of the Wild West, are you?' inquired Harry. "'That dob,' said Beresford, disdainfully. "'Emily, who's quite taken with the painter, insisted on my buying it and displaying it here. "'It's the work of Jeremy Arterbridge?' The bearded man blinked. "'Don't tell me you recognise that whelp's inane and borrowed style.' Nope, but your daughter mentioned him earlier. It told me you were at a showing of his paintings the afternoon Thackeray disappeared. Two losses that bloody day. My invaluable automaton and the outrageous price I paid for that dreadful canvas of Otterbridge's. Settling on an unoccupied stool, Harry requested, Tell me about Thackeray. From a file drawer, Beresford withdrew a portfolio. Clearing a space on a workbench, he opened it. Here are my notes and drawings pertaining to the steam man. Harry stood, joining the inventor. The top mechanical drawing showed an automaton, vaguely human in form, who stood seven feet tall. His metal head resembled a large canister with eyes, nose and mouth. The next drawing showed the interior of Thackeray's barrel chest, revealing an intricacy of gears and levers, as well as a large copper container to hold boiling water. Turning to a schematic drawing of the automaton's head, Beresford tapped it, I am quite proud of the fact that Thackeray has the power of speech as well as hearing. The guy can talk? The proud inventor nodded. Thus far he has a vocabulary of several thousand words, he answered. Had he not been abducted, I would have added more useful words and phrases to his vocabulary. How exactly does that work? Much of my process must remain my secret challenge, said Beresford. However, I can tell you that I drew on and improved some of the innovations of your American Thomas Alva Edison, plus some rather insightful suggestions provided by my novelist friend Bertie Wells, who has an astonishing grasp of science. Perhaps you're aware of his scientific romances? Yep. Another of Thackeray's advantages is that he is capable of thought. He showed Harry a drawing of the metal man dressed up in Valley's livery. It is my intention to promote my Beresford servitons as servants to perform an assortment of household chores. That will eventually allow our present servant class to move upward, permitting them to gain a more thorough education and eventually leave mindless drudgery exclusively to my steam creatures. However, some warmongers have... As I understand it, the Octavian ambassador thinks your automatons can be used as soldiers. Sighing, the inventor shut the portfolio. Alas, yes he said. It's my contention that they've kidnapped Thackeray and have modified him to become frightfully aggressive. Is that possible? Nodding sadly, Beresford reached into the portfolio and withdrew a fistful of newspaper cuttings. I fear foreign agents have done just that. They've changed poor Thackeray into a killing machine and are testing him in London. The cuttings were all from the London Times over the past three weeks. They described a series of brutal murders that had been taking place in the Limehouse district. Because of the vicious nature of his crimes, the unknown killer had been dubbed the Limehouse Mangler. The police seemed to have no solid clues, and the one possible eyewitness had only seen the Mangler from a distance, on a deeply foggy night. He described him as, A huge bloke, don't you know? Wearing an enormous plaid overcoat. After Harry studied the sheaf of clippings, 
He returned them to Beresford. People are getting killed, he said. If I can't track Thackeray down in the next two days, I'll have to talk to somebody at Scotland Yard. But see here, Challenge, that... If the Mangler is your runaway automaton, Beresford, it may take a whole crew of men to run him to ground, he said. There are a few things I can try on my own, but then it's got to be Scotland Yard. Off in the music room, Emily was still playing mournful tunes. The carriage turned off the Tottenham Court Road, went halfway around a small park, clattered to a stop in front of a narrow, grey stone, three-storey townhouse. Harry alighted, reached up to pay the top-hatted driver. Allow me, Miss Beresford, he offered, holding out his hand toward her. Simply because I foolishly allowed myself, Mr Challenge, to be hypnotised, Emily informed him, ignoring his proffered assistance and stepping free of the carriage unaided. In no way indicates that I am incapable of fending for myself in most situations. Grinning, he made a slight bow in her direction before starting up the brick steps of Mrs. Dennis Edgeware Ryder's home. The place had been electrified and the front windows on all the floors glowed warm yellow through the chill evening mist. Harry was two steps below the carved oaken door when it silently swung inward. He crossed the threshold into the long, brightly lit hallway. Behind him, Emily said, I sincerely hope your magician crony isn't going to bore us with cheap parlour tricks. From out of the parlour on their right stepped a portly, middle-aged man in his shirt sleeves. My tricks, dear lady, I can assure you, are far from cheap, he announced, as the crowned heads of numerous nations will gladly attest if pressed upon the matter. Good evening, Harry, my boy. What's that you're wielding, Lorenzo? A carpet sweeper, the plump magician replied, returning to the parlour and leaning it against the wall. Quite a useful invention, he pointed a gloved finger toward the ceiling. When dear Estella is in the throes of creation with one of her detective romances, I help out with a few household chores. From above came the metallic patter of a typewriting machine. Lorenzo, this is the young lady I mentioned, said Harry as Emily reluctantly entered the parlour. Miss Emily Beresford. My full name is the Great Lorenzo. Producing a bouquet of yellow roses out of thin air, the magician presented them to the young woman. Emily accepted the flowers, then dropped them onto the nearest marble-topped table next to a bell glass that sheltered a stuffed owl. Thank you, sir, she said crisply. Now, can you spare me further items from your bag of tricks and get down to business? Most certainly, my dear. Smiling, the great Lorenzo pointed a gloved forefinger at the discarded blooms. Be gone! After a faint popping sound, green smoke swirled up, soon surrounding the bouquet. When the smoke cleared, the roses were gone. Emily frowned, gave a disapproving sigh. Gesturing toward a claw-footed armchair, the magician invited, Pray, sit down by the fire, Miss Beresford, and we'll proceed. She took the indicated seat. Is there any danger you'll botch this, causing me irreparable harm, Mr. Lorenzo? As Harry will assure you, has he not already, the great Lorenzo never botches anything. He lowered himself into a bentwood chair that faced hers. Harry moved to stand behind his friend. I must inform you, although Mr. Challenge believes otherwise, that I am still not completely convinced I actually was hypnotised. 
A sceptical attitude is a valuable asset for coping with life in a great metropolitan city such as London. From a pocket of his checkered waistcoat, Lorenzo extracted a gold medallion on a gold chain. It had a bit of turquoise mounted at its exact centre. This, my dear, happens to be an ancient bit of jewellery, recently unearthed in Egypt at the site of the Pyramid of Ibis II, he explained softly, holding it by the chain. Really now? Yes, indeed. It is a true and absolutely authentic relic of a vanished empire. I would like you, Miss Beresford, to watch the stone as it moves slowly and repeatedly back and forth. Back and forth. This strikes me as being nothing more than simple-minded mumbo. Emily slumped in her chair, eyelids drifting shut. We shall commence with a few simple instructions, Lorenzo told her. Any previous orders given you while in any and all previous hypnotic states are hereby cancelled. Do you understand? Emily, eyes closed tight, grimacing, shoulders hunching, Answered. I. yes. I understand. You are henceforth under no other instructions but mine. Tell me, Miss Beresford, uh, when were you previously hypnotized? After a few silent seconds, she replied, It was two days before poor Thackeray was taken from us. Lorenzo glanced back inquiringly at Harry. The automaton, he said. You were told not to reveal any details of what happened to you. But, as already noted, those rules no longer pertain. Who hypnotised you? Grimacing again, Emily answered, It was... it was Jeremy Otterbridge. The magician nodded. What were his orders to you? To make certain, my father and I attended his gallery showing on a certain day and at a specified time. What about taking potshots at Harry? Jeremy hypnotised me a second time, recalled the hypnotised young woman. I was to pick up Mr Challenge at the train station, convey him to our home. When the clock struck four in the parlour, I was to take out a gun and kill him. Why, my dear? Harry Challenge is a spy, planning to kill my dear father and steal his plans. Uh, Where did the gun come from? It will be in the drawer when needed. Again, glancing up at Harry, the great Lorenzo asked, Anything else? Does she know who's got the automaton? What is Otterbridge's interest in Thackeray? I don't know, Mr Lorenzo. Do you know the current whereabouts of Thackeray? No, I do not. You'll go to sleep now. When I snap my fingers in a few moments, you'll awake, he informed her. You'll remember everything you've told us. You'll be unable to be hypnotised in the future by anyone but me, he coughed into his hand. You'll be forever certain that I am indeed the world's greatest magician, and that Harry Challenge is a decent chap. You could have added that I was the world's greatest detective, said Harry, moving out from behind the chair. We can only stretch the young lady's credulity so far. Lorenzo got to his feet. I've heard of Otterbridge. Were you aware that the lad was practising espionage on the side? Harry took out a thin cigar. Nope, but I sure as hell I'm going to find out more about him. Perhaps I can be of some assistance, Mr. Challenge. A tall, handsome woman of about fifty was standing in the parlour doorway. She was dressed in a long velvet gown 
and a necklace of real pearls circled her slender neck. I'm Mrs. Dennis Edgware Ryder, and it's an extreme pleasure to meet a real detective. You can offer a helpful suggestion to Harry, Estella, my dear. But of course, Renzo, dearest. She assured him as she came into the parlour. The Tartarus Club stood on a narrow lane of Great Russell Street. When Harry arrived there at exactly nine that evening, the earlier mist had turned to a light drizzle. The nearest street lamp was blurred, its light fuzzy. The large brass knocker, in the shape of an especially unattractive gargoyle, had been padded so that it produced only a gentle tapping. Silently, a full two minutes after Harry knocked, the heavy door opened a few inches. This is a private club, sir. A small, much wrinkled and highly bald servant squinted out to inform him. That I well know, Harry assured him. I have an appointment with Sir Ambrose Beggarstaff, arranged by Mrs. Dennis Edgware Ryder. The hairless man straightened some. Ah, yes, the gifted authoress of such splendid novels as The Clue of the Dowerless Maiden and many other thrilling pieces of literature. Extending a time-freckled hand that held a small silver tray out into the drizzly night, he requested, Your card, sir. Harry produced one from a vest pocket, depositing it on the sparkling tray. The venerable servant went away, shutting the thick oaken door silently on Harry. After three minutes or so, the door opened a few inches wider than previously. Sir Ambrose will see you in the Shakespeare room, sir. Harry followed the slow-moving man down a dim corridor past several gas-lit rooms and shadowy alcoves. In some rooms, gentlemen sat reading the London Times, Punch and The Strand. In one dark-panelled room, a billiard game was going on, though the balls made no sound as they collided. The Shakespeare room was better lighted than any he'd seen thus far. The books crowding the wall-high bookcases were several centuries old, probably from the days of Queen Elizabeth. Harry entered. Sir Ambrose. Obviously, our old truets wouldn't have delivered you here, challenge. Beggarstaff was about sixty, lean, short, and with curly dead-white hair and shadow-rimmed eyes. He was wearing a rumpled grey suit. Before you sit down, young fellow, I assume dearest Estella Ryder informed you that my consulting fee is fifty pounds. Are you clear on that matter? Settling into a wide leather armchair, Harry grinned. Actually, she told me it was twenty-five. Beggarstaff gave a chesty chuckle. For established customers, to be sure, he replied. Estella has been drawing on my near encyclopedic knowledge of the criminal mind and the London underworld for many a year challenge, ever since she established her reputation with the clue of the left-handed glove. Harry drew his wallet from the breast pocket of his coat. He extracted five ten-pound notes, setting them on his knee. It was Mrs. Ryder's notion, because of this encyclopedic knowledge of yours, that you might be able to make some suggestions as to the present whereabouts of a missing automaton. The mechanism is named Thackeray, invented and constructed by Hulbert Beresford and swiped from his home laboratory a month since. If you'll pass the fee over challenge, we can commence. Rising slightly out of the deep chair, Harry handed across the money. Do you know an artist named Jeremy Arterbridge who... What I'll do, cut in the pale beggar staff, is pose two questions of my own. As soon as you determine the answers to them, I venture to predict that you'll find your ill-named mechanical man. Harry nodded. Okay. First, 
Who has Jeremy Otterbridge, a mediocre painter, I might add, who has he been riding with every morning in Rotten Row for several weeks past? Secondly, is this relationship a motivating factor in the young ninny's non-artistic activities? After clearing his throat, he resumed. Next, why did Otterbridge rent, three some weeks ago, the long-deserted Copperfield Blacking Factory on the edge of the Limehouse District? That's three questions. I find myself in a generous mood this evening. He made a shooing motion with his pale left hand. You may leave. Harry left. The next evening was fog-ridden and cold. Every now and then, a small flurry of fat snowflakes came drifting down through the darkening sky. Their carriage made its way slowly and cautiously through the London streets and lanes. You sure, Harry, my boy, that you wouldn't care for a scone? inquired the great Lorenzo. It's one of the few things in life about which I'm absolutely certain, yes. Leaning back, he lit one of his thin cigars. If you'll pardon me, I'll have just one more. When the magician clapped his gloved hands, a large scone, encrusted with plump currants, materialised just above them. Catching hold of it, he took a bite. Crisp crumbs flickered down to land on his thick woolen muffler. So you find out who the duplicitous Utterbridge, painter and mesmerist, is canoodling with? Harry nodded. Helga Sonifero, beloved only daughter of Baron Sonifero, Octavia's ambassador to Great Britain. Ah, the very fellow who wants to convert Beresford's automatons into field soldiers for their current war. That, Baron Sonifero, yeah. What clever detective work on your part produced this information? I found out where Otterbridge was riding this morning, went there, rented a horse and watched. A stratagem worthy of Sherlock Holmes, observed Lorenzo, brushing scone crumbs from his ample sideburns, and then his nubby muffler. Or Martin Hewitt. You're certain it was indeed Helga Sonifero the villainous lad was galloping around with? She gave me her card. Oh, so? How did you manage that? Helga was so grateful when I plucked her free from the saddle of her runaway horse, Harry explained, exhaling smoke, that she handed over the card and suggested that I drop in at the embassy some afternoon for tea. She further mentioned that her grateful pappy, the Baron, would probably give me a medal, whether gold or silver was not specified. Where was Otterbridge during your daring rescue, my boy? He had the misfortune of falling off his horse at about that time. You had nothing to do with that? Hardly anything. The great Lorenzo clapped his hands again. I won't indulge in another scone, he announced. Wise decision. But a small chocolate eclair would... The plump magician suddenly groaned, bending forward. What's wrong, Lorenzo? Harry put his hand on his friend's shoulder. Breathing slowly through his mouth, Lorenzo replied. As you know, Harry, I am sometimes visited with visions of the future. You had one just now? I did. He straightened up. It was about you. Something unfortunate, I'd guess. I saw a huge fellow made of glittering metal rending you limb from limb, and then strewing your remains in a foul and foggy limehouse alley. Harry said, In the past your glimpses of the future were okay in a general way, but never too accurate when it came to specific details. The great Lorenzo nodded agreement. Since we are at this moment heading for the Copperfield Blacking Factory, I am assuming my vision has something to do with that, he said. If the missing steam man is being kept there, you'd best be very careful. He may attempt to kill you, Harry. I was already planning on being careful, Lorenzo, but thanks for the hint. Would that I could accompany you on your nocturnal investigation of the place. 
Alas, hundreds of devotees of the magical arts are counting on seeing my non-pareil performance in less than an hour. That's all right, Lorenzo, Harry assured him. You did enough by getting Mrs. Ryder to loan us her carriage. Should I receive any further visions, I'll abandon my devoted audience and rush to the rescue. Probably won't be necessary, Harry grinned. By the time Harry jumped from the roof of the rundown hotel to the nearby roof of the blacking factory several feet below, the night snow had intensified. When he landed atop the flat roof of the supposedly deserted factory, his booted right foot slipped on the thin dusting of new snow, and he lost his balance momentarily and skidded toward the edge. Damn, he mentioned as he came to a stop in time to avoid a plummet of three stories. He was dressed in dark trousers and a navy blue pea jacket, a dark granite cap on his head. The increasingly heavy snowfall freckled his clothes with spots of white as he made his way toward the skylight. It was exactly where the plans he'd consulted earlier had indicated. The uppermost floor of the blacking factory, viewed through the snow-blurred glass, was dark. In cautiously circling the grimy brick building earlier, Harry had spotted glimmers of light from the ground floor. After taking off his boots and depositing them in two of his coat pockets, he very quietly lifted the window. Waiting a moment, listening, he then lowered himself into the darkness below. Harry hit, with a minimum of noise, on the wooden plank floor. He remained where he'd landed, allowing his eyes to adjust to the surrounding darkness. All around were stacked wooden crates. No doubt they had copperfield blacking, none better, stenciled in bold letters on their sides. Inhaling slowly, Harry made his way through the storeroom, easing toward the stairway. The place still smelled strongly of the polish that had once been manufactured here. The next floor, also dark, had been given over to offices. As Harry moved in stocking feet toward the next stairway, he became aware of conversation drifting up from below. Elzio, you seem extremely nervy this evening, a voice with a slight Otavian accent was saying. You'd be off your feet too, Baron, had you fallen off your bloody stair earlier in the day. According to my dear daughter, Jeremy, you are not only clumsy but cowardly, continued Baron Sonifero. A total stranger, and not even a gentleman, I suspect, had to save Helga when her mount bolted. I happen to be an excellent horseman, sir, which is unusual among gifted painters, replied Utterbridge in his thin, nasal voice. However, that uncouth chap, and I strongly suspect he was an American, more than likely bumped into my horse and caused it to unseat me. Enough feeble alibis, Jeremy. Help me and the good Dr. Mackinson get Thackeray ready for tonight's test. Uh, this is another thing that's making me decidedly uneasy, Baron, complained the artist. I mean to say, don't you know, that one doesn't mind courting some annoyingly independent young lady nor hypnotising her when the need arises. One doesn't even balk at being a party to the theft of her father's blasted tin man. But damn, sir, being a party to innocent people being butchered by this mechanical brute, it's simply not the sort of thing a gentleman should be expected to be involved in at all. Since you're not a gentleman, but merely a second-rate painter and scapegrace, you needn't worry, the Baron told him. Also keep in mind that you're being well paid. Agreed that the pay is quite generous, old man, yet one does have moral qualms. I've found his muffler, announced an elderly man. It had fallen down behind one of my workbenches. A few spots of blood on it, yet I doubt anyone will notice. Very good, Dr. Mackinson, said the Baron. 
Arrange it on Thackeray, then we'll give him his instructions for tonight's field test. I do believe that my modifications of that Phil Beresford's automaton have achieved our goal, said the doctor. A very few more forays, and then we can ship him to Artavia and begin setting up for mass production of mechanical warriors. I really think you fellows are going to have to postpone tonight's test. Harry was at the bottom of the stairs, thirty-eight revolver in his hand. Clive, it's a bloke who knocked me off my horse, exclaimed Otterbridge. Imbecile, accused the Baron. This man is Harry Challenge of the Challenge International Detective Agency. Dr. Mackinson was a short, stout, grey-bearded man in a laboratory coat. He was standing beside Thackeray, the huge, steam man who was wearing nothing more than a large, plaid muffler at the moment. I kill this intruder, the doctor ordered the automaton. Misty steam came hissing out of the venting pipe just above the automaton's coppery left ear. Taking two clanking, giant steps in Harry's direction, Thackeray said, You'll forgive me, sir, for I fear I must slaughter you and thereafter tear off some of your appendages. His voice, emanating from a circular mouth hole in his canister-shaped head, was raspy and echoing. Even so, it sounded quite a bit like that of his creator. I'm near certain Beresford would be quite upset were you to do that, Thack, Harry told the steam man. After all, the ideal servant must know his place, never. Alas, sir, interrupted Thackeray as he thumped closer. I am no longer a servant. Dr. Mackinson has converted me to a soldier. Mine is not to reason why, as it were, but simply to do what I am ordered to do. Excellent, commented Ambassador Sonifero. You've got him thinking like a perfect fighting man. Shrugging modestly, Maxon said, It only required a few adjustments to convert him from butler to soldier, Baron. Harry executed an unexpected leap from the bottom step of the stairway. As he twisted in midair, he yanked his revolver out of a coat pocket. Sorry, Thackeray, he said, and dodging behind the lumbering automaton, he shot him three times in the backside. Oh, I say, complained Otterbridge. That's hardly sporting, old man. Shitting a chap in the back is far from cricket. Having gone over the plans with Beresford, Harry knew that the mechanical man's boiler was located in his lower back. I'm mortally wounded, realised Thackeray, commencing to totter. Tell them I'm happy to have died for my country. Boiling water came spurting out of the bullet holes, along with hissing swirls of steam. Damn, complained the ambassador. We should have unrapplated his bloody back. Thackeray, staggering, dropped to his metallic knees. A great, steamy sigh came gushing from his mouth and he fell with a resounding clang, to the factory floor. Harry fired his revolver yet again, in time to prevent Dr. Mackinson from tugging a pistol from beneath his lab coat. Thackeray's metal limbs twitched a few times. Then he was still. Steamy water burbled out of his back. Harry gestured with his revolver at Dr. Mackinson, Otterbridge and the ambassador. OK, gents, he suggested. Off we go to Scotland Yard. The great Lorenzo took a step in the direction of the blazing gas footlights. Pointing a white gloved hand upward, he told the large attentive audience, For untold centuries, the secret of levitation had been known only to the veiled sorcerers of ancient Chaldea. And then, while on an archaeological expedition, I became the first person to unearth the venerable manuscript that held the long-lost secret. Moving back from the footlights, he aimed his ivory-tipped wand at the white-gowned young woman, who appeared to be floating unaided, high above the theatre stage. Thus, I am able, as you have just witnessed, 
to elevate Princess Nadia, continued the portly magician, and from time to time I can also transport her to her native Egypt. The tip of the wand glowed green for a few seconds. Green smoke engulfed the floating princess. When it cleared, the floating lady was gone. The theatre audience applauded enthusiastically. Bowing, he said, Now, my dear friends, your humble servant, the great Lorenzo, bids you the most cordial good night. A cloud of emerald mist suddenly surrounded him, and he too vanished. Harry had been sitting on a prop trunk backstage, watching his friend's show. Splinters on the blasted trapdoor slide, muttered Lorenzo, as he returned from the basement of the theatre, rubbing at his left buttock. Can't you remove them by sorcery? The ancient Chaldeans must have worked out a spell for... Tweezers are simpler, said the magician. I read with bated breath all the accounts of your solving of the Limehouse Mangler case. Even the sedate London Times gushed. And they mentioned the Challenge International Detective Agency three times on the front page. Great publicity. Do you think Baron Sonifero will be able to save his neck by claiming diplomatic immunity? Harry grinned. I was hired to retrieve Beresford's missing automaton, he reminded Lorenzo. Everything else was frosting. I'm near certain they'll at least charge Arthur Bridge and Dr. Mackinson for the murders. The trial ought to be interesting. First time anyone's used a steam man to kill people. Lorenzo, gingerly, plucked a small splinter from his rump. Did Beresford express his undying gratitude? He paid our fee, but he's unhappy that I had to shoot up Thackeray to stop him from dismantling me. Alas, none of us are ever sufficiently appreciated, said Lorenzo. If you're not doing anything this evening, Harry, my boy, Estella Ryder would be pleased to have you join us for a late supper. She's exceedingly eager to chat with a sleuth of your reputation. Harry left the trunk, stretched. I promised Emily Beresford I'd drop by. The magician's eyebrows rose slightly. I was under the impression that the last didn't think much of you. The situation seems to have changed, said Harry. Don't forget, copyright is Ron Goulart. And Paul, thank you so much. Great narration. I hope everything's going all right on your side, Squire. So now it is Starship Sova Interrogations, and I would just like to ask Jack McDivitt... Are you a science fiction writer? Um, I guess it's easy one to answer. The answer to that is yes, you know, as far as I know. But let me let me tell you that, that in my life, there are two things that I really wanted to do when I was a little kid. Uh, one of them was to play shortstop to the Phillies, uh, and the other one was to be a science fiction writer. Tell me about your childhood. Uh, I grew up in South Philadelphia, um, working class parents, um, neither had really gotten much in the way of education. My father got through two years of high school. My mother, uh, got through eighth grade. She was in school at a time when it was not considered appropriate, I guess, for women to get much education since there was no point to it, since they were just going to get married and have kids anyhow. Um, nevertheless, I was very fortunate because they both seemed to want to make sure that I got a reasonable education. Um, so they uh, they they kind of stayed with me and, and paid the bills and let me get through get uh, through college. I, I was also very fortunate in another way. My mother, um, my my folks, I mean, my mother particularly, um, encouraged me to read at every opportunity. She was a reader herself, 
Uh, she did have a little bit of a problem, I believe, when I started bringing home those wild pulp magazines, the pulp science fiction magazines in the late 1940s, uh, because they had those half-naked women on the cover being hauled off by robots, and God knew what the robot was going to do with those women. But she was good enough to look the other way and let me get away with it, for which I'll always be grateful. But, uh, you know, I, I, I got involved with science fiction as far back as I can remember. Um, when I was four years old, just just uh, about the time yeah, about the time the Second World War was starting, um, my father took me to the movies uh, every weekend, and we saw, I remember seeing episodes of the Flash Gordon and Buck Rogers serials. I fell in love with the rocket ships, and that's how I got going on on uh, science fiction. I just thought, you know, wow, you know what a what a cool kind of business that is. Imagine having a rocket and being able to go places. The big thing that it did for me was it allowed me to look past the rooftops, you know, and I, I can see I can see the stars, and uh, I can see that there were bigger things in the universe than South Philadelphia. So I've always been grateful for all that. How did you get started in the science fiction genre? When I was about 14 or 15, I wrote a story in which uh, aliens were coming, and they, uh, they intercepted radio broadcast. I don't know it was from Dimension X or one of the one of the one of the uh popular science fiction radio shows of the era. And they thought it was really happening and they left. I know that plot's been done since, but I, I did it very early. I, I, I at at that age I sent the manuscript to I guess it was fantasy and science fiction and I got a handwritten note from Anthony Boucher. If I've got the right name, I know it was Anthony Boucher who sent me the note back. So I, it must have been him. Must have been a fantasy and science fiction. But I got a handwritten note back uh, encouraging me to go ahead, but that he couldn't use the story. And I thought, holy cats, you know, well, I'm rejected here. And I uh, decided that maybe I wasn't very good after all. I never never realized at, at that period how how nice it was to get a you know handwritten rejection from the editor. But uh, that was my first attempt. Um, I, I when I got to college, I won the freshman short story contest at LaSalle, and I thought maybe I was on my way as a writer. But then I started reading Charles Dickens, and I, I realized how good he was. And I'm like, God, I'm never going to be as good as that guy is. And I gave up, and I didn't write another word for 25 years. Uh, I, I wound up. I was in the Navy for several years. I was in the Customs Service. I did management training for the Customs Service. And eventually, I wound up on St. Simon's Island in Georgia. And I, had, I was working at the Federal Law Enforcement Training Center doing management training. And what happened was that I came home, when I, I guess I was just, I was bored, or I, I had begun to feel that my life wasn't really, I wasn't really doing anything I liked or that I loved. I came home, and my wife said, well, you know, why don't you, why do you you're always talking about writing science fiction. Why don't you try writing a science fiction story? Do it. Don't just talk about it. So I thought, okay, you know, I'll give it a try. So I, it's kind of curious. I, I, had, I had not really made the effort because I thought I wasn't good enough, and uh, I didn't want to, didn't like the idea of getting rejected, batting my head against the wall. So I wrote a story uh, about a guy who works in a post office who falls in love with a young woman down at the other end of the counter. The figures he's not good enough to make it with her, so he never asks. He never makes his move. And then a letter comes in that had been mailed 120 years earlier. It's just getting to the post office by Ralph Waldo Emerson. 
And I use some of Emerson's lines. The, the, the guy opens the letter and looks at it. And I use some of Emerson, some of the lines from Emerson's essay. So the one particularly where he says that if you can learn to believe in yourself, you can do almost anything. Um, anyway, I wrote this story. It was called The Emerson Effect. And uh, I sent it all. I sent it to a couple of the magazines. It got rejected. And I was ready to throw it in the desk and forget it and go back to my regular work. And uh, my wife kind of persisted. We sent it off to, um, largely at her urging, we sent it off to the Twilight Zone magazine. They bought the, they bought the story, and I've never looked back. That's what happened. Which single science fiction writer has most influenced your own style? Uh, I, I, I'm not going to pretend that I can write the way he does, uh, but the guy I would most like to like to be able to write like is Ray Bradbury. I, I love Bradbury's work, uh, especially the Martian Chronicles. When I when I was an English teacher and had uh, when I first started teaching, I, I discovered that my students, a lot of my students, did not didn't like being assigned books. They resisted everything, and I got I got the sense pretty early that what my job was as an English teacher was to, to get them passionate about reading, so how much fun reading can be, rather than simply try to give them a, uh, a background in what uh, English literature looked like. So, um, you know, I, 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 I tried various various other possibilities. Uh, instead of that, they had, us, they had us reading, for example, they wanted us to read The Mill and the Floss, um, which is all right if you're an adult, but I don't, you know, it never really struck gold with kids. So I tried that. You know, I tried Sherlock Holmes, which I love, but the kids didn't. I guess it was the wrong era. I tried a couple of other things, and I finally settled on the Martian Chronicles. They loved, the kids loved the Martian Chronicles. We couldn't keep copies of it on the bookshelves. Uh, but I, you know, I, I, I just think Bradbury, Bradbury's pure magic for me. I, would, I, I, I wish I could write like that. Which book by another author do you wish you had written? Martian Chronicles. <laughs> that, would, that would be my first pick. If, you, if you're looking for a novel, uh, I'm not sure. Um, I, I, I always loved Fred Hoyle's The Black Cloud. Uh, they're, 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 I, I suspect that's a question that if you know, if you ask me that question uh, five minutes later, I, I give you another book. I think of a whole bunch of books I'd like to be involved with that I would love to have written. What would be the one question you would ask a science fiction writer? Why do you do it? Why why write in a narrow field when uh, you know some science fiction writers uh, a lot of a lot of them have the ability to expand out to the field to make a lot more money? Um, and I'm I'm always fascinated about why some people who clearly are talented enough to go elsewhere uh, say with science fiction. For what reason do you write science fiction in preference to other classes of literature? Well, you know, it, it's those stars on the rooftops again. By the sheer size and magnificence of the universe, uh, the fact that gravity works the way that without gravity we got nothing, but gravity makes no sense. Gravity means you have to bend space. It means that space is made out of rubber. I mean, that's incredible when you think about it. You know, why do you, why do you fall off a roof or you walk off the edge of a roof? Why don't you just drift off into the sky? Well, it's because gravity's made out of rubber. Why is it that if you want to stay young, one way to do it is to get in your car and drive as fast as you can instead of just standing around? And that's crazy. The, uh, the universe is just an absolutely incredible place, and I get, I get the sense most people go through their lives and never notice 
you know, just think about this, the distances to places. If, if, if we were able to, to use that Star Trek transporter and send you out to the, the center of the Milky Way and give you a big spotlight, and on your birthday, you were to turn that spotlight on, and we put a big telescope, a really big telescope on it so that we can see it when the light gets here, when, when the place lights up. You know how long it would take for us to see the light? 28,000 years. Imagine that. 28,000 years for something that would go around the Earth 10 times in one second to get here. And, that, and, and we're talking about one galaxy. There are billions of galaxies. It's just an incredible universe. And it's like people don't notice. They don't notice. You look at uh, some of the statistics about uh, more than apparently something like 50% of the people in the United States think the world is uh, only 6,000 years old. It's really sad to go through life and, and not not notice the, the the place that you live in, and that's that's why that's why I like science fiction. You know, I, you know, you can get these. Uh, you know, they can't give me a real starship, so I can build my own and I can go out and look around. That's what I like. What one aspect of science fiction writing is the most difficult? The most aspect of uh, for me of any of this stuff is coming up with the initial concept. You come up, coming up with a concept for either a novel or a short story is, is the biggest part. Of it. Once I can get, uh, if, for example, if I'm doing one of the Benedict, Alex Benedict novels, which are effectively mysteries set in the far future, uh, if I can get, if I get to, can set up a good mystery, uh, and I'm not talking about whodunits, I'm talking about really strange events, like everybody disappearing out of a starship. Uh, think, think of the, uh, is it the Barry Roger, I guess. Where they found it adrift, and the Mary Celeste—I I always get confused. How does everybody disappear out of a starship? There are no aliens. There's no place they can go. You know that sort of thing. And, and when you get there, you look at the starship. The, the lander's still there. The suits, are, the space suits, are still on board. Um, so they couldn't even have gotten off the ship, and yet they're missing. The the, the thing is okay. The, the still the still has power. It still works. And if I. If, and that's basically what happened with the Mary Celeste. You know, they found this, uh, they found a sailing ship and it left, it left New York to go to Whitley to deliver, I don't know, some furniture or something. And they find it in mid-Atlantic with everybody gone. And if I can come up with a, with a reasonable solution, okay, one that doesn't entail some kind of trickery equipment or a trickery, some, some kind of super equipment or aliens in the neighborhood or something like that, uh, Something where when the reader gets to it, he says, you know, I should have seen that coming. That's what I look for. If I get that, if I get, if I get the initial concept and I can get the solution, the book writes itself. The rest of it's easy. Does it get any easier? No, not really. No, it's uh, every, you know, I, I, normally I've, I've been in the routine the last few years of turning in a novel in November. And then for the next three or four months, I struggle with the idea for the next book. And it does not get easy. Uh, it, it, what you're really asking me, I think, is do I get any smarter? And the answer is absolutely not. Uh, I think I've become a better writer because you, you can necessarily become better at the mechanics, for example. Um, but no, the, 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 basic, the basic issue, is, I'm only speaking of myself, I don't know about other people, obviously. But for me, it does not become any easier because I, you know, I'm like it's the same thing about you. I would, I would love to to to, to turn out to twelve, fifteen short stories a year. I keep promising stories to people and then struggling to deliver them because the you know, they just don't have the ideas. Um, 
And it's, it's not that I have to sit and wait for ideas to come. That never happens. I, I will actively try to pursue ideas. But they're, they're just not easy to come by. Not a good one. Not for me. Describe your daily work and day. I pretty much spend the day at the computer. Uh, I, I said I learned a long time ago not to not to set hours aside. If I if I decide I want to work for six hours or seven hours or whatever, I'll spend a lot of it looking out the window. So I I don't go about it that way. I set a given amount of pages, minimum number of pages. If I'm working on a rough draft, uh, I'll figure six pages or eight pages a day, whatever whatever the target is. And I get that done. Uh, and then after I've got that done, I will quit. Or at least if I feel like it, I'll quit. If I want to go on, I'll do that too. But uh, what I've discovered is that if I if I figure on setting aside time, I used to do that when I first started, when I was working in a regular job and writing in the evenings, and I'd work for, say, maybe three hours in the evening. What I discovered was I spent too much of my time staring out the window or stalling around. Whereas if I say, okay, you know, tonight I'm going to do this scene or that scene or whatever, uh, I can get that done, and then I can quit and relax. So I'm much more effective that way. What's the strangest thing you've ever done while researching? I don't know. Uh, yeah, that's a good question. Uh, yeah, I, I, I can do some. I've seen some funny things happen. You know what? What has struck me doing? You know, my my. I, I was an English major, so you know, I don't try to. I don't trust myself to do research. I get everything wrong. I don't. You know, I don't understand basic physics. I, I've got just enough physics now that I can get by usually without making major blunders. But what I what I've done is uh, if I've got an issue, uh, like you know how you, how would you really establish the position of a of a starship in the middle of nowhere? Uh, I go to a I go to a physicist and I ask, and what I've discovered is that they love well, they especially love off the wall questions. But I when I was first starting, I remember calling a guy at I called the Lowell Observatory. I got one of the astronomers, one of the physicists, whatever. And uh, I said, uh, you know, I, what I'd like to know is, uh, you know, is, is there a way you could blow up a star? And there's this long pause at the other end, and the guy says, blow up a star? I said, yes, could, could you do it? And, oh, yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, sure, absolutely. Listen, let me get back to you. And he takes my phone number and hangs up, and a couple of minutes later, he's back on the line, and he gives me this thing about, you know, do you, do you have any antimatter available? Well, I can, you know, I've got a lot of antimatter in the back room there. Uh, so, okay, you know, so, so just, just find a way to get the antimatter into the star, and that'll, that'll blow it up. I said, it'll really blow it up? Oh, yeah, it'll blow it the hell, yeah, jeez, oh, my God, it'd be great. And I can hear this enthusiasm on the other end at the prospect of taking out a star, and what and I I've seen that time after time. What happens is that these guys love to get an off the wall question, unlike anything that any you know any sober scientist is going to ask them. Uh, so that it stretches their minds a little bit. Do you think science fiction as a genre is different from other genres? Sure, it is. Uh, my I, I I should tell you that my mother never understood why I was writing science fiction. Uh, and, and she she encouraged me to write either westerns or historical novels, and uh, I was I was on a panel years ago with a uh, with one of the, one of our local writers who had had uh, st- done extremely well writing Civil War novels. He'd written half a dozen 
Civil War. They were big sellers. They were going to outsell anything I was ever going to write. People loved them. And we were on a panel together one time. And after the panel was over, she came. She turned to me and she said, "Jack, you know what? You know, I, I, well, why? Why don't you? Why don't you write? Why are you writing this stuff?" And I, you know, and, and I really, you know, other than the fact that I enjoyed it, I didn't have an answer. That was what my passion was. And after it was over, when it was too late, I, I always think of good answers after the after conversation's over. And I thought, the reason I'm writing it is that she makes a lot of money writing about the Civil War, but she stuck to the war. She, she stuck with all that racism and slavery and, and if you if you get wounded, the only way they can fix your arm is to take it off, uh, and you're stuck with all that stuff. Whereas you know, I can I can create a world where the human family is finally united, where people have finally learned to make sense, where where the craziness has gone out of politics, if you can imagine that. And that's that's nice. That gives me a feeling unlike anything that that I can that I can find in mainstream literature. What do you consider the chief value of science fiction? Probably the fact that it's, it's, it's as fine a form of entertainment as there is on the planet. But going beyond that, I have people who call me all, not call me, but who send me emails. It's funny how the world has changed. Uh, I used to get letters, now I get you know, a couple letters, a letter every now and then. Now I get, lots, I get a fair amount of emails. A lot of them are from physicists, doctors, uh, engineers, people saying that they got their they, they first got interested in their particular field because of science fiction. Sometimes, sometimes they're willing to give me credit or blame it on me, whichever the case may be. Uh, but, but more often than not, they simply talk about science fiction as a thing that inspired them. Uh, something else I think about science fiction is that it gives you know we live in an era. It, it used to be that everybody lived exactly the way their grandparents did. There was no change. It went hundreds of years and nothing ever changed. The only thing that ever happened was that occasionally the plague would break out or the river would overflow or the barbarians would show up at the gate. What science fiction does, it seems to me, is that it it teaches us about change. It makes us a little more ready for change. A good example, in the 90s when Bill Clinton was president here, they, they had that dolly, they cloned Dolly the sheep. And the general population of the United States reacted as if the notion of cloning had fallen out of the sky. They were shocked. Oh, it's not the way God would do it. You know, and they, they, they got upset. And uh, the president of the United States said he wasn't going to permit it. There was never any discussion about whether this would be a good thing or not a good thing or whatever. It was just a shock. Except, of course, for science fiction fans who have been reading about cloning for 30 years. It was no shock for us. But people, uh, people outside the science fiction field started talking about Frankenstein. Uh, what, I, you know, I, it, what I've discovered is that wherever I go to a science fiction convention, to whichever coast or in Canada or whatever, you always, I always really like the people who are there. They are, they, they, they're, they're, they're bright, they're smart, they're into stuff. They know what you're talking about. They, they tend to have open minds. At least it seems that way. Maybe it's because they think the way I do that I think well of them. And and in other areas I don't see that. You know, you go to some side. You know, I get to address some sorts of groups, and, and minds are closed, and uh, it's a, it's a whole different game. I, I've I've had you know inevitably if I go to a non-science fiction group, I almost always have somebody wants to know do I believe in flying saucers, and somebody else will come up to me afterward and, and say how you know. Uh, 
my uh, my nephew reads the stuff, uh, reads science fiction. I don't read the stuff myself, but my nephew does, and he says it in a tone that suggests that his nephew has other strange qualities as well. And I and I, and I, I literally I, I I feel sorry for these people because they they've kind of missed everything. They uh, they they've never known what it is to to, to ride a starship, to 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 go to strange places. To uh, you know, to, to consider the, the the literal size of the universe, they're more concerned with you know they they never get past paying the mortgage. Has science fiction ever disappointed you? I, no, I don't think it has. I, you know, I, I, there there's some some things I would pr- prefer to see go differently. I you know I, I I'm not overwhelmed with the uh, the I, there seems to be more popularity and more interest now in fantasy than in science fiction. I, you know I. I, I remember being in a bar a number of years ago in New York, and I had I had, uh, we were talking about ideas, and I had told somebody at that at that table what I told you earlier, which was that it was how what a struggle it is to come up with an idea. And I still remember one of the people at that table saying, uh, and these were supposed to be all science fiction writers, they weren't, but they they claimed to be. Uh, but somebody at the, at the table said, "Oh, you know, I, I have more ideas than I am ever going to be able to write." in my lifetime. But his, his notion of an idea was that there's a vampire living in the boardroom on the 14th floor, and there's another vampire in the basement, and, and you know, and you get this kind of stuff over and over, uh, which, uh, there's that, and I, you know, and I, I think something else that disappoints me about science fiction is the amount of attention that's given to uh, pedestrian stuff. We, you know, we can do pedestrian stuff just as well as anybody else can. Uh, for example, the uh, endless books about war. You know, does anybody really believe that if we run into aliens, we're going to fight wars with their starships? Uh, why would why would we bother? You know, it, 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 it makes no sense, and you'd be so vulnerable. You know, you couldn't, you really practically couldn't fight a war anyhow. But for a writer, surely there's something. If you've got a starship, there's got to be something more interesting that you could go look at and play around with. Than some evil emperor somewhere, you know. It, it's even when I was four years old, I got annoyed with Flash Gordon when I was going to see those movie serials because he had those great rocket ships that all I could do was fight with Ming, who looked like my uncle Louie. That's sad. That's sad. So yeah, I think I think uh, I think a lot of us don't take advantage of the field that we're in. Is there still new ground to be covered in science fiction literature? I'm sure there is. Um, Certainly there is, uh, but don't ask me what it is, Tony. I have, if 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 I knew what it was, it wouldn't be new very long. But yeah, yeah, I think, you know the world keeps changing. You know, right now I'm in the process of reading uh, the Science Fiction Hall of Fame, which was edited short stories that were edited back in 1975. The book was put together by Robert Robert Silverberg was the editor of the Science Fiction Writers of America, selected the stories. And you know, you read you read those stories, and they're they're good, uh, but they're different. And you know, it's a different era. And you get the sense, sure, you know, we're 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 moving along, we're moving ahead. Uh, things are changing. I'm not sure which direction they're going to go. I was uh, at the beginning of the century. Uh, I was getting invitations to go talk to groups of people about where the 21st century was going to go. And I always had to start off. I thought, hey, you know, do you think? Honestly, think H.G. Wells could have told anybody in the year 1901 what was going to happen in the 20th century. You know, uh, I, I doubt it. So, you know, I just don't know. I don't know where it's going. 
But uh, you know, I, I think I think as long as we have science fiction, the country's going to be in the other world, maybe Western civilization will be in decent shape. Jack McDivitt, thank you very much. Well, thank you, Tony. It's been a pleasure. There you go. What a great guy. Jack, honestly, thank you so much. One of the heroes of science fiction. Thank you, honestly. Brilliant. Next up is Escape from Kathmandu Part 2. This is the Kim Stanley Robinson serial that we are featuring now. It is narrated by, as you know, Josh Roseman. Previously on Starship Sofa, George Ferguson has a pretty good life in Nepal. He takes tourists on expeditions, lives in one of the better rooms in a Kathmandu hotel, and generally enjoys life. But when his curiosity about a thick, dusty, abandoned letter gets the better of him, he learns that a group of scientists found a yeti up in the mountains, a story he can hardly believe. Almost immediately after reading the letter, he meets the man who sent it, Nathan Howe, who's back in the country and looking for the intended recipient, his close friend, George Fredericks. Nathan's former comrades have returned to Nepal as well, intent on abducting the Yeti and making a name for themselves in the scientific journals. Nathan tells both Georges he can't let that happen, and Ferguson. Ferguson has a plan. And now, part two. Five. I have never known Bakshish to fail in Kathmandu, but that week at the Everest Sheraton International, the employees were bottled up tight. They didn't even want to hear about anything out of the ordinary, much less be part of it, no matter the game. Something was up, and I began to suspect that J. Reeves Fitzgerald had a very big bankroll indeed. So plan A for getting into a Drakian's room was foiled, and I retired to the hotel bar, where Nathan was hidden in a corner booth, suitably disguised in sunglasses and an Australian Outback hat. He didn't like my news. The Everest Sheraton International is not exactly like Sheraton's elsewhere, but it is about the quality of your average Holiday Inn, which makes it five-star in Kathmandu and just about as incongruous as the old Vienna. The bar looked like an airport bar, and there was a casino in the room next to us, which clearly, to judge by the gales of laughter coming from it, no one could take seriously. Nathan and I sat and nursed our drinks and waited for Fred's, who was casing the outside of the hotel. Suddenly, Nathan clutched my forearm. Don't look. Okay. Oh my god, they must have hired a whole bunch of private security cops. Jeez, look at those guys. No, don't look! Unobtrusively, I glanced at the group entering the bar. Identical boots, identical jackets with little bulges under the arm, clean-cut looks, upright, almost military carriage. They looked a little bit like Nathan, to tell the truth, but without the beard. Hmm, I said. Definitely not your ordinary tourists. Fitzgerald's bankroll must have been very big. Then Fred's came winging into the bar and slid into our booth. Problems, man. Shh, Nathan said. See those guys over there? I know, said Freds. They're Sacred Service agents. They're what? Nathan and I said in unison. Secret Service agents. Now don't tell me this Fitzgerald is a close friend of Reagan's, I began, but Freds was shaking his head and grinning. No, they're here with Jimmy and Rosalind Carter, haven't you heard? Nathan shook his head, but I had a sudden sinking feeling as I remembered a rumor of a few weeks back. He wanted to see Everest? That's right, I met them all up in Namchi a week ago, actually, but now they're back and staying here. Oh my god, Nathan said. Secret Service men, here. They're nice guys, actually, Fred said. We talked to them a lot in Namchi, real straight, of course, real straight, but nice. They could tell us what was happening in the World Series because they had a satellite dish, and they told us what their jobs were like and everything. Of course, sometimes we'd ask them questions about the Carters, and they just looked around like no one had said anything, which was weird, but mostly they were real normal. 
And what are they doing here, I said, still not quite able to believe it. Well, Jimmy wanted to go see Everest, so they all helicoptered into Namchi, just as if there was no such thing as altitude sickness, and took off for Everest. I was just now talking with one of the agents I met up there, and he told me how it came out. Roslyn got to 15,000 feet and turned back, but Jimmy kept on trudging. Here he's got all these young, tough Secret Service guys to protect him, you know, but they all started to get sick, and every day they were helicoptering out a number of them because of altitude sickness, pneumonia, whatever, until there were hardly any left. He hiked his whole crew right into the ground. What is he, in his 60s? And here all these young agents were dropping like flies while he motored right on up to Kalapatar and Everest Base Camp, too. I love it. That's great, I said. I'm happy for them. But now they're back. Yeah, they're doing the Kathmandu culture scene for a bit. That's too bad. Ah, no luck getting a key to the Yeti's room, is that it? Shh, Nathan hissed. Sorry, I forgot. Well, we'll just have to think of something else, eh? The Carter's gonna be here another week. The windows, I asked. Fred shook his head. I could climb up to them, no problem, but the ones to their room overlook the garden, and it wouldn't be all that private. God, this is bad, Nathan said and down to scotch. Phil could decide to reveal the what he's got at a press conference while the Carters are here. Perfect way to get enhanced publicity fast. That would be just like him. We sat and thought about it for a couple of drinks. You know, Nathan, I said slowly, there's an angle we haven't discussed yet that you'd have to take the lead in. What's that? Sarah. What? Oh, no, no, I couldn't. I can't talk to her, really. It just, well, I just don't want to. But why? She wouldn't care what I said. He looked down at his glass and swirled the contents nervously. His voice turned bitter. She'd probably just tell Phil we were here and then we'd really be in trouble. Oh, I don't know. I don't think she's the kind of person to do that. Do you, Fred's? I don't know, Fred said, surprised. I never met her. She couldn't be. Surely. And I kept after him for the rest of our stay, figuring it was our best chance at that point. But Nathan was stubborn about it and still hadn't budged when he insisted we leave. So we paid the bill and took off, but we were crossing the foyer and near the broad set of front doors when Nathan suddenly stopped in his tracks. A tall, good-looking woman with large owl eyeglasses had just walked in. Nathan was stuck in place. I guessed who the woman must be and nudged him. Remember what's at stake. A good point to make. He took a deep breath, and as the woman was about to pass us, he whipped off his hat and shades. Sarah! The woman jumped back. Nathan, my God, what, what are you doing here? Darkly. You know why I'm here, Sarah. He drew himself up even straighter than usual and glared at her. If she'd been convicted of murdering his mother, I don't think he could have looked more accusing. What? Her voice quit on her. Nathan's lip curled disdainfully. I thought he was kind of overdoing the laying on of guilt trip, and I was even thinking of stepping in and trying a less confrontational approach, but then right in the middle of the next sentence his voice twisted with real pain. I didn't think you'd be capable of this, Sarah. With her light brown hair, bangs, and big glasses, she had a schoolgirlish look. Now that schoolgirl was hurting. Her lip quivered, she blinked rapidly. I, I, and then her face crumpled, and with a little cry, she tottered toward Nathan and collapsed against his broad shoulder. He patted her head, looking flabbergasted. Oh, Nathan, she said miserably, sniffing. It's so awful. It's all right, he said, stiff as a board. I know. The two of them communed for a while. I cleared my throat. Why don't we go somewhere else and have a drink, I suggested, feeling that things were looking up, but trifle. 6. We went to the Hotel Annapurna coffee shop, and there Sarah confirmed all of Nathan's worst fears. They've got him in there locked in the bathroom! 
Apparently, the Yeti was eating less and less, and Valerie Budge was urging Mr. Fitzgerald to take him out to the city's funky little zoo immediately. But Fitzgerald was flying in a group of science and nature writers so he could hold a press conference the next day or the day after that, and he and Phil wanted to wait. They were hoping for the Carter's presence at the unveiling, as Fred's called it, but they couldn't be sure about that yet. Fred's and I asked Sarah questions about the setup at the hotel. Apparently, Phil, Valerie Budge, and Fitzgerald were taking turns in a continuous watch on the bathroom. How did they feed him? How docile was he? Question, answer, question, answer. After her initial breakdown, Sarah proved to be a tough and sensible character. Nathan, on the other hand, spent the time repeating, We've got to get him out of there. We've got to do it soon. It'll be the end of him. Sarah's hand on his just fueled the flame. We'll just have to rescue him. I know, Nathan, I said, trying to think. We know that already. A plan was beginning to fall into place in my mind. Sarah, you've got a key to the room? She nodded. Okay, let's go. What, now? Nathan cried. Sure, we're in a hurry, right? These reporters are going to arrive and they're going to notice Sarah is gone and we've got to get some stuff together first. 7. When we returned to the Sheraton, it was late afternoon. Fred's and I were on rented bikes, and Nathan and Sarah followed in a taxi. We made sure our cabbie understood that we wanted him to wait for us out front. Then Fred's and I went inside, gave the all-clear to Nathan and Sarah, and headed straight for the lobby phones. Nathan and Sarah went to the front desk and checked into a room. We needed them out of sight for a while. I called all the rooms on the top floor of the hotel, the fourth, and sure enough, half of them were occupied by Americans. I explained that I was J. Reeves Fitzgerald, assistant to the Carters, who were fellow guests in the hotel. They knew all about the Carters. I explained that the Carters were hosting a small reception for the Americans at the hotel, and we hoped that they would join us in the casino bar when it was convenient. The Carters would be down in an hour or so. They were all delighted at the invitation except for one surly Republican that I had to cut off, and they promised to be down shortly. The last call got Phil Adrakian in room 355. I identified myself as Lionel Hotting. It went as well as the others. If anything, Adrakian was even more enthusiastic. We'll be right down, thanks. We have a reciprocal invitation to make, actually. I was prejudiced, but it did sound like a pain. Nathan's epithet, theorist, didn't really make it for me. I preferred something along the lines of, say, asshole. Fine. Looking forward to seeing all your party, of course. Fred's and I waited in the bar and watched the elevators. Americans in their safari best began to pile out and head for the casino. You wouldn't have thought there was that much polyester in all Katmandu, but I guess it travels well. Two men and a plump woman came down the broad stairs besides the elevator. Them? Fred's asked. I nodded. They fitted Sarah's descriptions exactly. Phil Adrakian was shortish, slim, and good-looking in a California golden boy kind of way. Valerie Budge wore glasses and had a lot of curly hair pulled up. Somehow, she looked intellectual, where Sarah only looked studious. The money man, J. Reeves Fitzgerald, was sixty-ish and very fit-looking, though he did smoke a cigar. He wore a safari jacket with eight pockets on it. Adrakian was arguing a point with him as they crossed the foyer to the casino bar, and I heard him say, "'Better than a press conference!' I had a final inspiration and returned to the phones. I asked the hotel operator for Jimmy Carter and got connected, but the phone was answered by a flat Midwestern voice. Very businesslike indeed. Hello? Hello, is this the Carter suite? May I ask who is speaking? This is J. Reese Fitzgerald. I'd like you to inform the Carters that the Americans in the Sheraton have organized a reception for them in the hotel casino bar for this afternoon. I'm not sure their scheduling will allow them to attend. I understand, but if you just let them know, of course. Back to Fred's, where I downed a star beer in two gulps. Well, I said, 
Something should happen. Let's get up there. 8. I gave Nathan and Sarah a buzz, and they joined us at the door of room 355. Sarah let us in. Inside was a big suite, style, generic Holiday Inn. It could have been in any city on earth, except that there was a slight smell of wet fur. Sarah went to the bathroom door and unlocked it. There was a noise inside. Nathan, Fred's, and I shifted around behind her uncomfortably. She opened the door. There was a movement, and there he was, standing before us. I found myself staring into the eyes of the Yeti. In the Kathmandu tourist scene, there are calendars, postcards, and embroidered t-shirts with a drawing of a Yeti on them. It's always the same drawing, which I could never understand. Why should everyone agree to use the same guess? It annoyed me, a little furball thing with his back to you, looking over his shoulder with a standard monkey face and displaying the bottom of one big bare foot. I'm happy to report that the real Yeti didn't look anything like that. Oh, he was furry, all right, but he was about Fred's height and had a distinctly humanoid face surrounded by a beard-like ruff of matted reddish fur. He looked a little like Lincoln, a short and very ugly Lincoln, sure, with a squashed nose and rather prominent eyebrow ridges, but the resemblance was there. I was relieved to see how human his face looked. My plan depended on it, and I was glad Nathan hadn't exaggerated in his description. The only feature that really looked unusual was his occipital crest, a ridge of bone and muscle that ran fore and aft over the top of his head, like his skull itself had a mohawk haircut. Well, we were all standing there like a statue called People Meet Yeti when Fred's decided to break the ice. He stepped forward and offered the guy a hand. Namaste, he said. No, no. Nathan brushed by him and held out the necklace of fossil shells that he had been given in the spring. Is this the same one? I croaked, momentarily at a loss. Because up until that bathroom door opened, part of me hadn't really believed in it all. I think so. The Yeti reached out and touched the necklace and Nathan's hand. Statue time again. Then the Yeti stepped forward and touched Nathan's face with his long, furry hand. He whistled something quiet. Nathan was quivering. There were tears in Sarah's eyes. I was impressed myself. Fred said, He looks kind of like Buddha, don't you think? He doesn't have the belly, but those eyes, man. Buddha to the max. We got to work. I opened my pack and got out baggy overalls, a yellow free Tibet t-shirt, and a large anorak. Nathan was taking his shirt off and putting it back on to show the Yeti what we had in mind. Slowly, carefully, gently, with many a soft-spoken sound and slow gesture, we got the Yeti into the clothes. The t-shirt was the hardest part. He squeaked a little when we pulled it over his head. The anorak was zippered, luckily. With every move I made, I said, Namaste, blessed sir. Namaste. The hands and feet were a problem. His hands were strange, fingers skinny and almost twice as long as mine, and pretty hairy as well, but wearing mittens in the daytime in Kathmandu was almost worse. I suspended judgment on them and turned to his feet. This was the only area of the tourist drawing that was close to correct. His feet were huge, furry, and just about square. He had a big toe like a very fat thumb. The boots I had brought, biggest I could find in a hurry, weren't wide enough. Eventually, I put him in Tibetan wool socks and Birkenstock sandals, modified by a penknife to let the big toe hang over the side. Lastly, I put my blue Dodgers cap on his head. The cap concealed the occipital crest perfectly, and the bill did a lot to obscure his rather low forehead and prominent eyebrows. I topped everything off with a pair of mirrored wraparound sunglasses. Hey, neat, Fred's remarked. Also, a Sherpa necklace, made of five pieces of coral and three giant chunks of rough turquoise strung on a black cord. Principle of distraction, you know. 
All this time, Sarah and Nathan were ransacking the drawers and luggage, stealing all the camera film and notebooks and whatever else might have contained evidence of the Yeti. And throughout it all, the Yeti stood there, calm and attentive, watching Nathan, sticking his hand down a sleeve like a millionaire with his valet, stepping carefully into the Birkenstocks, adjusting the bill of the baseball cap, everything. I was really impressed, and so was Fred's. He really is like Buddha, isn't he? I thought the physical resemblance was a bit muted at this point, but his attitude couldn't have been more mellow if he'd been the Gautama himself. When Nathan and Sarah were done searching, they looked up at our handiwork. God, he looks weird, Sarah said. Nathan just sat on the bed and put his head in his hands. It'll never work, he said. Never. Sure it will, Freds exclaimed, zipping the anorak up a little farther. You see people on Freak Street looking like this all the time. Man, when I went to school, I played football with a whole team of guys that looked just like him. Fact is, in my state, he could run for senator. Whoa, whoa, I said. No time to waste here. Give me the scissors and brush. I still have to do his hair. I tried brushing it over his ears with little success, then gave him a trim in the back. One trip, I was thinking, just one short walk down to a taxi, and in pretty dark halls. Is it even on both sides? For God's sake, George, let's go. Nathan was getting antsy, and we had been a while. We gathered our belongings, filled the packs, and tugged old Buddha out into the hall. 9. I have always prided myself on my sense of timing. Many's the time I have surprised myself by how perfectly I have managed to be in the right place at the right time. It goes beyond all conscious calculation into deep mystic communion with the cycles of the cosmos, etc., etc. But apparently in this matter, I was teamed up with people whose sense of timing was so cosmically awful that mine was completely swamped. That's the only way I can explain it. Because there we were, escorting a Yeti down the hallway of the Everest Sheraton International, and we were walking casually along, the Yeti kind of bow-legged, very bow-legged, and long-armed, too, so that I kept worrying he might drop to all fours, but otherwise passably normal. Just an ordinary group of tourists in Nepal. We decided on the stairs to avoid any awkward elevator crowds, and stepped through the swinging doors and into the stairwell. And there, coming down the stairs toward us, were Jimmy Carter, Rosalind Carter and five Secret Service men. Well, Freds exclaimed, damned if it isn't Jimmy Carter and Rosalind too. I suppose that was the best way to play it, not that Freds was doing anything but being natural. I don't know if the Carters were on their way to something else, or if they were actually coming down to attend my reception. If the latter, then my last-minute inspiration to invite them had been a really bad one. In any case, there they were, and they stopped on the landing. We stopped on the landing. The Secret Service men, observing us closely, stopped on the landing. What to do? Jimmy gave us his famous smile, and it might as well have been on the cover of Time magazine. It was such a familiar sight. Just the same. Only not quite. Not exactly. His face was older, naturally, but it also had the look of someone who had survived a serious illness or a great natural disaster. It looked like he had been through the fire and come back into the world knowing more than most people about what the fire was. It was a good face, it showed what a man could endure, and he was relaxed. This kind of interruption was part of his daily life, part of the job he had volunteered for nine years before. I was anything but relaxed. In fact, as the Secret Service men did their hawk routine on Buddha, their gazes locked. I could feel my heart stop, and I had to give my torso a little twist to get it started up again. Nathan had stopped breathing from the moment he saw Carter, and he was turning white above the sharp line of his beard. It was getting worse by the second when Fred stepped forward and extended a hand. Hey, Mr. Carter, namaste. We're happy to meet you. How, how are y'all? More of the famous smile. Where are y'all from? And we answered. Arkansas. California. M Massachusetts. Oregon. 
and at each one he smiled, and nodded with recognition and pleasure, and Rosalind smiled and said, Hello, hello, with that faint look I had seen before during the presidential years, that seemed to say she would have been just as happy somewhere else, and we all shuffled around so that we could all shake hands with Jimmy, until it was Buddha's turn. This is our guide, Badim Badur, I said. He doesn't speak any English. I understand, Jimmy said, and he took Buddha's hand and pumped it up and down. Now I had opted to leave Buddha barehanded, a decision I began to seriously regret. Here we had a man who had shaken at least a million hands in his life, maybe ten million. Nobody in the whole world could have been more of an expert at it, and as soon as he grasped Buddha's long, skinny hand, he knew that something was different. This wasn't like any of the millions of other hands he had shaken before. A couple of furrows joined the network of fine wrinkles around his eyes, and he looked closer at Buddha's peculiar getup. I could feel the sweat popping out and beating on my forehead. Um, Badim's a bit shy, I was saying, when suddenly the Yeti squeaked. Namaste, it said, in a hoarse, whispery voice. Namaste, Jimmy replied, grinning the famous grin. And that, folks, was the first recorded conversation between Yeti and human. Of course, Buddha had only been trying to help, I'm sure of that, given what happened later, but despite all we did to conceal it, his speech had obviously surprised us pretty severely. As a result, the Secret Service guys were about to go cross-eyed checking us out, Buddha in particular. Let's let these folks get on with things, I said shakily, and took Buddha by the arm. Nice to meet you, I said to the Carters. We all hung there for a moment. It didn't seem polite to precede the ex-president of the United States down a flight of stairs, but the Secret Service men damn well didn't want us following them down there either. So finally I took the lead, with Buddha by the arm, and I held on to him tight as we descended. We reached the foyer without incident. Sarah conversed brightly with the Secret Service men who were right behind us, and she distracted their attention very successfully, I thought. It appeared we would escape the situation without further difficulties when the doors to the casino bar swung back, and Phil Adrakian, Jay Reeves Fitzgerald, and Valerie Budge walked out. Timing anyone? Adrakian took in the situation at a glance. They're kidnapping him, he yelled. Hey, kidnapping! Well... You might just as well have put jumper cables on those Secret Service agents. After all, it's kind of a question why anyone would want to assassinate an ex-president, but as a hostage for ransom or whatnot, you've got a prime target. They moved like mongooses to get between us and the Carters. Freds and I were trying to back Buddha out the front doors without actually moving our legs. We weren't making much progress, and I don't doubt we could have gotten shot for our efforts if it weren't for Sarah. She jumped right out in front of the charging Adrakian and blocked him off. You're the kidnapper, you liar, she cried, and slapped him in the face so hard he staggered. Help, she demanded of the Secret Service guys, blushing bright red and shoving Valerie Budge back into Fitzgerald. She looked so tousled and embattled and beautiful that the agents were confused. The situation wasn't at all clear. Fred's, Buddha, and I bumped out the front door and ran for it. Our taxi was gone. Shit, I said. No time to think. The bikes? The bikes? Fred's asked. Yep. No other choice. We ran around the side of the building and unlocked our two bikes. I got on mine, and Fred's helped Buddha onto the little square rack over the back wheel. People around front were shouting, and I thought I heard a Drakian among them. Fred's gave me a push from behind, and we were off. I stood up to pump up some speed, and we wavered side to side precariously. I headed up the road to the north. It was just wider than one lane, half paved and half dirt. Bike and car traffic on it was heavy as usual, and between dodging vehicles and potholes, looking back for pursuers, and keeping the bike from tipping under Buddha's shifting weight, I was kept pretty busy. 
The bike was a standard Kathmandu rental, hero jet by brand name. Heavy frame, thick tires, low handlebars, one speed. It braked when you pedaled backwards and had one handbrake, and it had a big, loud bell, which is a crucial piece of equipment. This bike wasn't a bad specimen either, in that the handbrake worked, and the handlebars weren't loose, and the seat wasn't putting a spring through my ass. But the truth is, the Hero Jet is a solo vehicle, and Buddha was no lightweight. He was built like a cat, dense and compact, and I bet he weighed over 200 pounds. With him in back, the rear tire was squashed flat. There was about an eighth of an inch clearance between rim and ground, and every time I misnavigated a pothole, there was an ugly thump as we bottomed out. So we weren't breaking any speed records, and when we turned left on Dili Bazaar, Fred shouted from behind, They're after us! See, there's that Adrakian and some others in a taxi! Sure enough, back a couple hundred yards was Phil Adrakian, hanging out the side window of a little white Toyota taxi, screaming at us. We pedaled over the Dobicola Bridge and shot by the Central Immigration Building before I could think of anything to yell that might have brought the crowd there into the street. Fred's, I said, panting. Make a diversion! Tie up traffic! Right on! Without a pause, he braked to a halt in the middle of the road, jumped off, and threw his hero jet to the pavement. The three-wheeled motor cab behind him ran over it before the driver could stop. Fred screamed abuse. He pulled the bike out and slung it under a Datsun going the other way, which crunched it and screeched to a halt. More abuse from Fred's, who ran around pulling drivers from their vehicles, shouting at them with all the Nepalese he knew. Chisohoa! Tatopani! Ramro Din! I only caught glimpses of this as I biked away, but I saw he had bought a little time and I concentrated on negotiating the traffic. Dili Bazaar is one of the most congested streets in Kathmandu, which is really saying a lot. The two narrow lanes are fronted by three-story buildings containing grocery markets and fabric wholesalers, which open directly onto the street and use it for cash register lines and so on, despite the fact that it's a major truck route. Add to that the usual number of dogs, goats, chickens, taxis, young schoolgirls walking three abreast with their arms linked, pedicabs with five-foot-tall operators pedaling whole families along at three miles an hour, and the occasional wandering sacred cow, and you can see the extent of the problem. Not only that, but the potholes are fierce. Some could be mistaken for open manholes. And the hills. I was doing all right until that point, weaving through the crowd and ringing my bell to the point of thumb cramp, but then Buddha shook my arm, and I looked back and saw that a Drakian had somehow gotten past Fred's and hired another taxi, and he was trailing us again, stuck behind a colorfully painted bus some distance behind, and then we started up the first of three fairly steep up-and-downs that Dilly Bazaar makes before it reaches the city center. Hero jets are not made for hills. The city residents get off theirs and walk them up inclines like that one, and only Westerners, still in a hurry, even in Nepal, stay on and grind up the slopes. I was certainly a Westerner in a hurry that day, and I stood up and started pumping away. But it was heavy going, especially after I had to break to a dead stop to avoid an old man blowing his nose with his finger. A Drakian's taxi had rounded the bus in an explosion of honks, and he was gaining on us fast. I sat back on the seat, huffing and puffing, legs like big blocks of wood, and it was looking like I'd have to find a diplomatic solution to the problem, when suddenly both my feet were kicked forward off the pedals. We surged forward, just missing a pedicab. Buddha had taken over. He was holding onto the seat with both hands and pedaling from behind. I had seen tall Westerners ride their rental bikes like that before to keep from smashing their knees into the handlebars on every upswing, but you can't get much downthrust from back there, and you didn't ever see them doing that while biking uphill. For Buddha, this was not a problem. I mean, this guy was strong. He pumped away so hard that the poor hero jet squeaked under the strain, and we surged up the hill and flew down the other side like we had jumped onto a motorcycle. 
motorcycle without brakes, I should add. Buddha did not seem up on the theory of the foot brake, and I tried the hand brake once or twice and found that it only squealed like a pig and reduced our stability a bit. So as we fired down Dilly Bazaar, I could only put my feet up on the frame and dodge obstacles, as in one of those race car video games. I rang the bell for all it was worth and spent a lot of time in the right lane heading at oncoming traffic. They drive on the left. Out the corner of my eye, I saw pedestrians goggling at us as we flew by. Then the lanes ahead cleared as we rounded a semi, and I saw we were approaching the traffic engineer's intersection, usually one of my favorites. Here, Dilly Bazaar crosses another major street, and the occasion is marked by four traffic lights, all four of them permanently green, 24 hours a day. This time, there was a cow for a traffic cop. Bistar! Slowly, I yelled but Buddha's vocabulary apparently remained restricted to namaste, and he pedaled right on. I charted a course, clamped down the handbrake, crouched over the handlebars, rang the bell. We shot the gap between a speeding cab and the traffic cow, with three inches to spare on each side, and were through the intersection before I even had time to blink. No problem. Now that's timing. After that, it was just a matter of navigation. I took us the wrong way up the one-way section of Durbar Marg to shorten our trip and throw off pursuit for good, and having survived that, it was simple to make it the rest of the way to Tamel. As we approached Tamel, we passed the grounds of the royal palace. As I mentioned, the tall trees there are occupied day and night by giant brown bats, hanging head down from the bare upper branches. As we passed the palace, those bats must have caught the scent of the yeti, or something, because all of a sudden the whole flock of them burst off the branches, squeaking like my handbrake, and flapping their big skin wings like a hundred little Draculas. Buddha slowed to stare up at the sight, and everyone else on the block, even the cow on the corner, stopped and looked up as well, to watch that cloud of bats fill the sky. It's moments like that that make me love Katmandu. In Tamel, we fit right in. A remarkable number of people on the street looked a lot like Buddha, so much so that the notion hit me that the city was secretly being infiltrated by Yeti in disguise. I chalked the notion up to hysteria caused by the traffic engineer's intersection and directed our hero jet into the Hotel Star Courtyard. At that point, walls surrounded us, and Buddha consented to stop pedaling. We got off the bike, and shakily, I led him upstairs to my room. 10. So, we had liberated the imprisoned Yeti, Although I had to admit, as I locked us both into my room, that he was only partway free. Getting him completely free, back on his home ground, might turn out to be a problem. I still didn't know exactly where his home was, but they don't rent cars in Kathmandu, and the bus rides, no matter the destination, are long and crowded. Would Buddha be able to hold it together for ten hours in a crowded bus? Well, knowing him, he probably would, but would his disguise hold up? That was doubtful. Meanwhile, there was the matter of a Drakian and the Secret Service being on to us. I had no idea what had happened to Nathan and Sarah and Fred's, and I worried about them, especially Nathan and Sarah. I wished they would arrive. Now that we were here and settled, I felt a little uncomfortable with my guest. With him in here, my room felt awfully small. I went in the bathroom and peed. Buddha came in and watched me, and when I was done, he found the right buttons on the overalls and did the same thing. The guy was amazingly smart. Another point... I don't know whether to mention this, but in the normal hominid versus primate debate, I've heard it said that most primate male genitals are quite small, and that human males are by far the size champs in that category. Hooray for us. But Buddha, I couldn't help noticing, was more on the human side of the scale. Really, the evidence was adding up. The Yeti was a hominid, and a highly intelligent hominid at that. Buddha's quick understanding, his rapid adaptation to changing situations, his recognition of friends and enemies, his cool all indicated smarts of the First Order. 
Of course it made sense. How else could they have stayed concealed so well for so long? They must have taught their young all the tricks, generation to generation, keeping close track of all tools or artifacts, hiding their homes in the most hard-to-find caves, avoiding all human settlements, practicing burial of the dead. Then it occurred to me to wonder, if yetis were so smart and so good at concealment, why was Buddha here with me in my room? What had gone wrong? Why had he revealed himself to Nathan? And how had a Drakian managed to capture him? I found myself speculating on the incidents of mental illness among yetis, a train of thought that made me even more anxious for Nathan's arrival. Nathan was not a whole lot of help in some situations, but the man had a rapport with the yeti that I, sadly, lacked. Buddha was crouched on the bed, hunched over his knees, staring at me brightly. We had taken his sunglasses off on arrival, but the Dodger's cap was still on. He looked observant, curious, puzzled. What next, he seemed to say. Something in his expression, something about the way he was coping with it all, was both brave and pathetic. It made me feel for him. Hey, guy, we'll get you back up there. Namaste. He formed the words with his lips. Perhaps he was hungry. What do you feed a hungry yeti? Was he vegetarian? Carnivorous? I didn't have much there in the room. Some packages of curry chicken soup, some candy. Would sugar be bad for him? Beef jerky? Yeah, possibility. Nibiko malt biscuits, which were little cookie-like wafers made in India that figured large in my diet. I opened a package of these and one of jerky and offered some to him. He sat back on the bed and crossed his legs in front of him. He tapped the bed as if to indicate my spot. I sat down on the bed across from him. He took a stick of jerky in his long fingers, sniffed it, stuck it, between his toes. I ate mine, for example. He looked at me as if I'd just used the wrong fork for the salad. He began with a Nebico wafer, chewing it slowly. I found I was hungry, and from the roundness of his eyes, I think he felt the same. But he was cool. There was a procedure here, he had me know. He handled all the wafers carefully first, sniffed them, ate them very slowly, took the jerky from between his toes, tried half of it, looked around the room, or at me, chewing very slowly, so calm, so peaceful he was. I decided the candy would be okay and offered him the bag of jelly beans. He tried one and his eyebrows lifted. He picked one of the same color, green, from the bag and gave it to me. Pretty soon we had all the food I owned scattered out there on the bed between us, and we tried first one thing and then another, in silence, as slowly and solemnly as if it were all some sacred ritual. And you know, after a while, I felt just like it was. 11. About an hour after our meal, Nathan, Sarah, and Fred's all arrived at once. You're here, they cried. All right, George, way to go. Thank Buddha, I said. He got us here. Nathan and Buddha went through a little hand ritual with the fossil shell necklace. Fred's and Sarah told me the story of their adventures. Sarah had fought with a Drakian, who escaped her and ran after us, and then with Valerie Budge, who stayed behind with Fitzgerald to trade blows and accusations. It was a joy to pound on her. She's been coming on to Phil for months now. Not that I care anymore, of course, Sarah added quickly as Nathan eyed her. Anyway, she had pushed and shoved and denounced Budge and Fitzgerald and Nadrakian, and by the time she was done, no one at the Sheraton had the slightest idea what was going on. A couple of Secret Service men had gone after Adrakian. The rest contented themselves with shielding the Carters, who were being called on by both sides to judge the merits of the case. Naturally, the Carters were reluctant to do this, uncertain as they were of what the case was. Fitzgerald and Budge didn't want to come right out and say they had had a Yeti stolen from them, so they were hamstrung, and when Fred's returned to see what was up, Nathan and Sarah had already ordered a cab. I think the Carters ended up on our side, Sarah said with satisfaction. All well and good, added Fred's, 
But there I had old Jimmy right at hand, no Yeti to keep me polite, and man, I had a bone to pick with that guy. I was in San Diego in 1980, and along about 6 o'clock on election day, me and a bunch of friends were going down to vote, and I argued heavily with them that we should vote for Carter rather than Anderson, because Anderson would just be a gesture, whereas I thought Carter might still have a chance to win, since I don't believe in polls. I really went at it, and I convinced every one of them, probably the peak of my political career, and then when we got home and turned on the TV, we found out that Carter had already conceded the election a couple of hours before. My friends were so mad at me, John Drummond threw his beer at me, hit me right here. In fact, they soaked me, so I had a bone to pick with old Jimmy, you bet, and I was going to go up to him and ask him why he had done such a thing. But he was looking kind of confused by all the ruckus, so I decided not to. The truth is I dragged him away before he could, said Sarah. Nathan got us back to the problem at hand. We've still got to get the Yeti out of Kathmandu, and a Drakian knows we've got him. He'll be searching for us. How are we going to do it? I've got a plan, I said, because after my meal with Buddha, I had been thinking. Now where is Buddha's home? I need to know. Nathan told me. I consulted my maps. Buddha's valley was pretty near the little airstrip at J. I nodded. Okay, here's how we'll do it. There you go. That is Starship Sofa, show 172. Do keep in touch, you know, do send your emails over if you want to have a little chat with us. That would be fantastic. Starshipsover at gmail.com. Don't forget what else is going on. Don't forget, like, the Hugos, you know, if, you, if you've got a chance there to blog or vote, that would be fantastic. Those two things. Best fanzine for Starship Sofa and best related work. And when you're out there as well, don't forget other people that's been on the show, other writers as well. That would be lovely. If, I'd say what's going good, the Narrator's Workshop. If you fancy yourself as being a bit of a narrator, do think about joining up for the Narrator's Workshop. That is, it's going really well. And that's on the 5th of February. We have the the winner of the, <laughs> the best narrator, Larry Santuro, is one of the speakers that's happening on that workshop. Just getting it all worked out now, and I'm I'm really looking forward to that. So do pop over there if you want to. There's a link on the front of the website, and yes, there's actually a picture on the forums. Dee's roped in his little little daughter there to help make up these like thank you cards for with the signatures on of the writers that have, we've got left over from Starship Sofa's Volume Two. Dee's roped his daughter in there, and you can actually see a nice picture of them putting together these cards, these thank you cards. You can get one if you. Donate £10 or more. That would be fantastic. We'll send one of these out to you. And don't forget, if you want to, you know, just basically support Starships over your like what we're doing, there is the sanatorium, private shows, private feed. Just a little thank you, and it would be it'd go a long way. There you go. That is 172, put to bed. Like I say, any ideas or thoughts you want to have, Drop us an email. I'd love to hear from you. It's, it's fantastic. Thank you so much. And I will see you next week. Until then, I would just like to say good night from me. Will our heroes survive this terrible ordeal? Can they win through with their integrity unscathed? Can they escape without completely compromising their honor and artistic judgment? Tune in next week for the next exciting installment of Starship Sofa. Evacuation procedure initiated. Shuttle set for launch. Airlock will be opened in 3, 2, 1.